I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. I see a lot of adults in my therapy practice who come to heal emotional injuries, often decades old. Whether or not a body image trauma is part of the story, over time, many of these folks uncover deeply held beliefs that fit into a popular narrative of not good enoughness. They struggle to trust and honor their own needs and limits, recognize their self-worth independent of accomplishments or feelings of productivity, and are often dogged by an unrelenting part of themselves that tells them they should always be doing more. As our therapy evolves, we often end up tracing these narratives back to early life experiences where those that nurtured them misread critical behavioral cues. I'm talking about cues like perpetually messy room or chronic procrastination, difficulty rousing for physical activities, or general academic output failure, misread these cues as willful idleness, which left them with a kind of malignant core belief that they were lazy. I think about these adults as children when they were starting to form that negative self-concept and wonder how much suffering might have been averted had they met someone like my guest today, Dr. Devin Price, who argues that if a person's behavior doesn't make sense to you, it is because you are missing a part of their context. Dr. Price, a social psychologist, activist, and author, is here to help us rethink how we understand productivity, learn to more effectively recognize our children's invisible struggles, and consider the prospect that, as their book proclaims, laziness does not exist. Dr. Price, welcome to the show. So let's start there. You don't believe that laziness exists. I'm with you. But why? Why do you not believe that laziness exists? So this idea comes back to, again, something that I learned from a friend that I made on Tumblr when we were in a writing community together. And they were homeless at the time and like dealing with like domestic violence, like addiction issues, all kinds of stuff going on in their life. Being a single parent, living in a RV in a Walmart parking lot. And um, they were explaining just in the context of harm reduction for drug users that People don't do things that don't make sense from where they're sitting. Even if you don't agree with the choice that a person's making in their life or something that they're failing to do, um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a reason for it that doesn't make sense from, from where they're sitting. And so when you see someone just refusing to take action from your perspective, what's actually going on there is that you're missing a huge amount of their context. So why is this person not applying for a job? You know, how many times have they been turned away from jobs before? How depressed are they? What kind of trauma are they coping with? Um, what are the ways in which it's impossible for them to even show up to a job interview because they lack access to like the hygiene and professional attire and everything else, transportation and everything else that's required? Basically, any social problem like that where you find yourself frustrated with a person for failing to take action. There's just a litany of barriers and challenges that are getting in their way that you're just either not seeing because you're not in their shoes or you're refusing to accept as a legitimate enough reason to be blocked. 
So that's kind of the core idea um, when I say that laziness does not exist. Nobody chooses to disappoint. If somebody cares about a goal, they would never choose to fail at it. So there's something going on there um, that's getting in the way and that it's more meaningful to look at what is that barrier or what are those barriers because usually there's a bunch of them uh, than to just blame the individual for like lacking willpower. Yeah. But that lacking willpower, that laziness being equated with a lack of something. And I guess on the opposite productivity being some kind of sign of, well, something virtuous, something really valuable in our society. Where did this idea come from? Like that the harder we work, the better we are in a way, what you're sharing about why laziness doesn't exist. It's not a hard sell, certainly for me. But then I I always kind of look at the culture we're in and I'm like, this is not a culture that believes this, not yet anyway. So can you give us a little mini history lesson on like, what is the origin story of our attitude towards productivity and laziness? Yeah, it's a really particular flavor of Christianity that's really responsible for this. Not even Christianity writ large, but really Puritanism. And I think it's useful for people to keep in mind. And we've had a lot more conversations, I've noticed in in writing and online about this lately, that the Puritans in England were really uh, religious extremists who even in England people thought, generally speaking, had a very dehumanizing view of human nature, even back then, um, around the time that the United States was colonized. They believed that children needed to behave like little adults. They even made furniture that would try to force children's bodies into as an adult a posture as possible from as early an age as possible. Uh, even though, of course, we now know just babies can't hold their heads up and it's very strange to expect them to. But that basic principle that we should force people to not ever need help and never have any weakness, that pretty much carries over into their view of everything to do with human nature. So the Puritans believed that if you worked really hard, that was a sign you had been chosen for heaven. And that if you were not really motivated, that was a sign you were already basically like consigned to hell. So it wasn't even that you like work to earn your way into heaven. It's just like there's good people who work hard and there's bad people who don't have it in them to work hard. And as colonization was happening in the U.S. and the Puritans being some of the earliest forces and influences of colonization here, that was a really useful ideology to kind of twist and put on enslaved people, indentured mm-hmm. servants, people building small communities in the middle of nowhere where they don't have a lot of social or government support. If you just really drill into people, you're on your own, you need to work hard and people who suffer because they can't work hard, you know, who cares about them? They're evil people. That was a very politically convenient ideology to have. So it was really pushed really hard on those groups of people, really indoctrinated into enslaved populations. And it's been with us ever since it's, you know, sneaky and it changes forms But it's really been that same narrative with us ever since the days of colonization. Um, So, for example, when abolition happened, immediately thereafter, you started seeing political cartoons that portrayed Black Americans asking for reparations as lazy, just wanting a handout. They're taking advantage of the government, all this stuff. And it's basically the exact same kind of political cartoons that we saw in the 80s with like welfare Welfare queens. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So we've always since then returned to this image of lazy people that are taking advantage of the system. We, you know, people say this about disabled people, homeless people, students who need disability accommodations, any group that needs any assistance or that society has kind of failed to take care of. We turn around and blame them 
for that status and say it's because they're lazy. Yeah. I mean, and I'm thinking about the time we've spent on this podcast talking about weight stigma. And today we're talking about a, a, a different kind of stigma, right? But laziness becomes this trait, right? This attribute that fat people have. And so in our culture, we think of fat and lazy as almost the same thing. And so it's interesting to kind of pull out the lazy piece of that, right? We normally talk about in the context of weight stigma, but these are deep, deep roots. And I'm wondering if maybe we can just orient listeners to what it looks like today, because this shows up for all of us. Every single client I ever work with, they have so much troubles just doing nothing, sitting still. It just feels like some moral failing. The shame is so intense. And I guess I'm asking two things. One, what does it look like today, right? We don't have welfare queens in the same way that we did for cartoons anyway, as hopefully nobody's accepting those as socially acceptable now. But there are 2021 versions of this. So I kind of want to, like, what are some ways we can sort of identify it Extern- like outside of us and also within us in terms of thinking. Sure. Yeah. So first let's go to an example of fat phobia. When people talk about Americans being ignorant or even uh, Americans being kind of uh, reactionary or conservative, even a lot of kind of progressive people immediately invoke stereotypes of fat, lazy, ignorant people. So that's still in our political cartoons, totally, right? Totally. Or just in our in our news coverage, right? The like headless fat bodies. Anytime you're talking about some kind of social problem or ignorant group of people, you immediately see lots of imagery of like these people are are fat and lazy and also they're intellectually lazy. So that's still very much with us, the way that those two things are really tied. It is very much in how we talk about people who receive or need any kind of government benefits. I mean Right now, with unemployment running out for a lot of people during the pandemic, there's so much conversation about just let eviction moratoriums end, kick people on the street, let people go hungry. I think that was Laura Ingram on Fox saying that basically that like we can't trust people to work. Uh, people don't want to work, that kind of narrative. And so you have to force people to work using, you know, starvation, economic coercion, basically. We see that in how a lot of managers have responded to COVID in general. We already lived in a very workaholic world before the pandemic, but there was such a focus on not letting any workers get away with something while working from home during a global mass death event. So there was this huge investment in March and April of last year in um, software that would monitor uh, employees' keystrokes and take screenshots of their screens. I knew people who they had to like be on a Zoom call all day long with their work team to prove they were really working. Just really out of control coercion and surveillance, even though we also at the same time had data showing productivity actually went up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So even if you are trying to treat people like robots, it was not necessary. People were working really hard because there wasn't much else to do, you know? So it's really with us everywhere. It's it's in how we doom scroll, I think. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that comes from our hatred of laziness, this idea that we need to remain informed and plugged in and available all the time. I think it's in us using programs like Slack and Microsoft Teams to remain connected forever. I think our culture's hatred of laziness has pretty much spread its tendrils into basically anything that you feel like you have some obligation to do, whether that's, oh, I'm not exercising enough or, you know, I'm not giving my kids enough enrichment activities right now during this time when I'm 
ridiculously busy. There's just like an unending litany of things for people to feel bad about not doing enough. Yeah. And it almost sounds like there's this um, assumption. I mean, I'm thinking now about the kind of the Puritans that you shared with us, this assumption that we are intrinsically lazy, that like actually left to our own devices without technology that's going to monitor how many swipes our time card or whatever, that intrinsically we are lazy and therefore we will do nothing. And I think about this in terms of movement and how, oh, people think you need to like motivate and use shame to like get people moving. And in reality, we don't want to be sedentary. Like as humans, if we just are embodied beings, we do want to move kind of like animals. Like we do want to create, we do want to produce, but that's different from what these expectations are about what productivity should look like or what fitness should look like. And it's sort of interesting to think about how low our opinion is of our, ourselves, right? Like <laughs> as humans, like if we're not um, kind of acting out this productivity thing, then we're going to be failures as opposed to thinking about, I don't know, like what would we do if it wasn't so horrible to be, I'm doing air quotes, be lazy, what actually could naturally come from that? I mean, I, it's a sort of different direction than we were going, but I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating because when I do talk to people about this book, or even when I was just kind of dwelling on the idea of it before writing it, I would talk to these friends that I have that are incredibly driven, overworking people. I was talking to this friend and I mentioned it in the book, who's a visual artist. He's a graffiti artist. So he's mm. traveling all over the world all the time, painting these huge walls, 16 hour long days, just incredibly hardworking person. And I asked him about just how grueling that was. And he said something to me about, well, I'm actually really lazy. That's why I have to work so hard. I have to force myself to work this hard because if I ever, you know, stop pushing myself, it'll just all fall apart. And I've heard that from a lot of people who are chronic, like overworkers and over committers in other ways. They think there's this laziness inside of them that is their real self, this like evil kind of sinful nature that they have to fight against with at every waking moment. And I think what's really going on there is they're so exhausted that they think there's like no bottom to it. That if they give themselves a day to rest, that it will just never, ever end. And really most of us are so chronically exhausted that, yeah, we do need a few days to really catch up on sleep and recuperate. But we know from looking at how things like universal basic income have been instituted in other countries and things like that, People don't like just sitting around doing nothing. They might enjoy, you know, a vacation basically for a couple of weeks, maybe even a month or two, but people want to feel like their lives have meaning. They right. want to feel like they're doing something uh, rewarding with their lives. So yeah, you can actually trust people to figure out what that is instead of just like beating any last bit of productivity out of themselves. And I think with the exercise piece too, there's a couple of really interesting things going on there because. One, we have it really ingrained in us that we're lazy and slothful and we need to be like, you know, boot camp instructors to ourselves and force ourselves to exercise and make it like hurt, right? Mm -hmm. No pain, no gain. Yeah, exactly. And and like, and ignore your pain, push through the pain. Yeah. And that's part of how we've ended up, a lot of us being so sedentary too, because work tells us to ignore our feelings while we're at work. So it's like, if you had more freedom in your life, you wouldn't be getting up and pacing and taking a walk around the neighborhood and exercising and dancing around your mm -hmm. apartment more. But if you're just glued to your desk working all day, then yeah, 
you do feel real, really sedentary because you have this other thing that's forcing you to be sedentary. So I think there's kind of those two different ways in which we're made to ignore our bodies at the same time. Yeah, no. And this full bloom project is all about raising a more embodied and inclusive next generation. And you like cannot be embodied if you're not listening to your body, right? And and in a way, what you're saying is that we have all this fear and stigma around this concept of laziness that will do anything to avoid being it, or many of us will. Or if we're not able to, then we just feel bad about ourselves. So either way, it sucks. But in a way, that deprives us of having access to our internal kind of reality. So, okay, so I agree with you. Laziness does not exist, but there is this thing, right? People say they use this word lazy and they say, I feel lazy or you look lazy, like you are lazy. So run down some like lazy behaviors, right? Air quote, lazy behaviors that you say are not an active choice. They're probably a symptom of something else that we're not seeing. Uh, We need the context, but what are some of the behaviors that people do mislabel as lazy? Yeah. So one of the most iconic ones probably is procrastination, right? Especially if we're talking in the context of kids and students and things like that. You know, you have a deadline coming, you know, you need to study and you're not doing it. Why is that? That looks so lazy. Usually when we look at people who are at high risk for procrastination, they tend to have really, really perfectionistic standards for themselves and are really, really anxious about the task that they're putting off. So clearly the problem for people in that situation, it's not that they don't care. It's not that they're apathetic. In fact, they care too much a lot of the time and they're just holding themselves to such an impossible to meet standard that it's really paralyzing. And a lot of times when you look at procrastination too, it comes from a person looking at a really big task, like writing a 20 page paper and just seeing the finished product as this huge thing looming over them rather than being able to to divide it up into small daily work that we can chip away at. So that's a really big factor in a lot of things that look lazy too. It's just that overwhelm and that inability to chunk it up and divide it up. A lot of things that we call um, laziness are depression, right? Like sleeping a lot. Um, A lot of people really don't realize that when you're depressed, your sleep quality is way lower. So every hour of sleep is less restful than it would have been if you weren't depressed. So you need more sleep. Your brain is kind of constantly at war with itself and fighting to keep you alive. So more time that you spend unconscious can really be kind of protective and restorative. Another thing that we often call lazy or apathy is learned helplessness. So if someone has repeatedly had their power taken away from them, and I think this is often the case with teens in particular, but children as well, and young adults, if you've repeatedly not been given agency or your best efforts in life have just been you know, met with, that's not good enough, you're not taking this seriously, you only care about frivolous, silly, immature things, that is going to teach you that your motivation doesn't matter and your passion doesn't matter and you shouldn't listen to those things. And nobody's going to appreciate what you're doing anyway, so why even bother? So a lot of times when someone is just totally checked out from school or applying for a job or, you know, even doing chores around the house, whatever it is, you have to really look at their past experiences and say, how often have they been told that their efforts don't matter? And Mm -hmm. from where they're sitting, is it actually totally logical that they would conclude, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. 
So why try? I'm really appreciating this framework that you're giving us of assuming that what's happening makes sense. You know, that as a parent, I can tell you that when my kid is not doing something that I need them to do or want them to do, it's just so frustrating. And so, right, we have to like regulate our own emotions as the caregiver. But what you're saying, it's such a good starting point. If you can come to a child with curiosity, which we've talked about a lot, that non-judgmental stance, to be like, what is up? Fine. He feels lazy to me. He's lazy. Say it to yourself, whatever. But I think this is an invitation to then interpret, what do I actually mean by that? Okay, this looks like lazy behavior. I'm going to name it. Okay, he's procrastinating or he's struggling. I mean, people do struggle with executive functioning. I mean, I'm thinking about how lazy behavior could also be a a flag, like that there's some neuroatypicality that your kid may require evaluation so that they could get some assistance with some kind of skill that isn't like getting, they're just not naturally osmoting in the social environment, for example. And I, I'm thinking about how if we look at lazy behavior as like a signal of something rather than a diagnosis of something, we have this invitation and this opening to get curious about not just what's going on, but like who our kid is. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think the other side of that, in addition to being curious and humble, is to also kind of presume competence. Yes. Which I think is really hard for someone to do when you're interacting with a kid, because obviously they don't think the way adults do. They obviously don't know and prioritize things the way that adults do. And we might not always agree with what priorities they're setting. And sometimes we do have to step in, right? And and take care of people who can't fully take care of themselves, right? But presuming that when someone's actions don't make sense to you, they still are an accurate reflection of what's important to that person and what they're feeling and what they need. I think that really helps put you on a little bit more of an even playing field where you can at least treat them with respect and try to honor their autonomy as much as you can, which is going to vary depending on the, the situation, right? But people do things that make sense from where they're sitting. And they're trying to meet their needs in the best way that they can. And sometimes that means what you think is really important is not what they think is really important. And learning to discern the situations where you need to really step in and say, hey, it's actually really important that you do this. Let's figure out how to make it work versus just accepting we're different people. We have different values. And some of these things I can just let coexist and like really honor their right to make these priorities and, and choices too. Well, and it also just makes it okay to need help and get help, right? To sort of presume that this person is doing the best they can in this moment. This is what it looks like. And let's say there is a deadline, there is a paper due, or there is a task that needs to be completed. That kid may just need help getting it done, right? And that might be you know, help just in the moment or a broader type of help, right? Having some sort of early intervention. I mean, that that exists too. A lot of the things that you were saying could be what's really under the lazy behavior. I don't think we expect parents or a teacher to be able to like totally help that kid. Like that's why mental health professionals exist, right? That's why early intervention programs exist because we want to make sure that people and young people included are hooked up with the supports they need so that they can feel competent, right? It's a total way to feel competent. If you say, I struggle with this, but I know... I know I struggle with this and I know what to do or who to ask 
so that I can feel better about doing this with my level of ability, right? Yeah, and I think also letting go of perfectionism here seems really important, that sometimes it's just, okay, let's get some kind of paper in. I'm not in control, ultimately, of you, you know, being a straight-A student and all of these things. And, like, let's focus on what's important to you, what you need to get by, and also, like, I can't hold you to, like, standards of just that you're going to excel in all of these things or even assume that that makes you a better person if you can excel in all of these things. So kind of like detaching our evaluation of someone as a person from their ability level, I think is also really important here because sometimes it's about just like, okay, how can we get through this really challenging situation and do good enough? Because good enough really is good enough. (laughs) It's like the goal. Yes, absolutely. Good enough is like fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And, you know, it's sort of the advice we often give to parents to pull back on compliments and praise about appearance, but also about accomplishment. Because this is one of those really um, hard, as a parent in particular, you want to applaud, you you look at what you did, I'm so proud of you, but really trying to focus on intrinsic qualities and and almost praising or validating the, the things that actually matter, like how hard someone tried, or not even necessarily how hard they tried, but like who they are as a person, <laughs> like who their what their values are or what they care about and how they expressed kindness or something that can't be quantified in the same way as how perfect a score you got or how beautiful you are. So I think that that's another piece of this here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think taking to some extent a lead from them about what do they like? You know, I think I certainly growing up, and I think most people who, if you had any of those like gifted education kind of traumas, you were told what you were good at, but you weren't necessarily asked what you liked doing. And it's this really kind of objectifying view of the self and of our skills. And we certainly do this to kids who don't have the privileges of being in gifted education. And with them, it's even worse because it's like, then you don't get that at least kind of conditional acceptance and, um, and people having faith in you. Um, You kind of get people not caring about what you enjoy and telling you that you're not good enough. But I think with it, so that's, you know, even more brutal, but um, I think we do just approach people with this, you know, not just kids, all people with like, here's, you know, achievement motivation is the most important thing. You're defined by what you're good at and what you do and how you make money or how you earn high grades, whatever it is, instead of like, what actually makes you feel alive? What will a life that you actually want to live look like? So again, fostering agency when you can. Yeah. Well, and I I do see education and kind of social emotional learning curriculums popping up in schools. And I, I, I have more hope for this sort of generation below us. Okay. You have this knowledge and you know, both from personal experience, but also as a social psychologist, you know that people will feel better and ultimately do better, whatever that do better means for them, right? If they are not dogged by this oppression of, let's say, the fear of laziness or what it means in society to be lazy or the pressure to produce in this kind of conventional way, right? So my little project for us is if we were going to create like a little micro mini course to like go in and teach parents and teachers and other nurturers, like the goal is to arm them with a couple of strategies, even just like three 
that they need in order to ensure that the kids in their care are growing up in environments where laziness does not exist. It's like a utopia. (laughs) Laziness does not exist, right? What are the kind of step one, step two, step three? Obviously, this is, you know, not, you can't just change your (laughs) way of being in three steps, but I want to learn from you, like, what do you want these parents and and teachers to do so that then they can take those learnings into the classroom and whether they're just osmoting it or they're really explicitly saying what's up about this topic um, so that there's some benefits uh, felt by the kids in their care? Yeah. Um, so I think where it starts uh, is kind of coming back to that body awareness and kind of consent piece and really kind of arming yourself and arming your kid with tools as early on as possible to honor how they're feeling. And on your side, as kind of the adult to kind of take behavior as communication. That's a really big um, thing in the autistic self-advocacy world, which I'm a part of. Just this idea that non-compliance is a social skill. So leaving a situation that makes you uncomfortable is a social skill. Refusing to talk about something that makes you uncomfortable that's a social skill. A lot of these things that we think of as stubbornness, obstinance, laziness, and that we really punish in kids, especially when they're very young, are indications of how they're feeling and what they need that we can work with. That doesn't mean that you're going to give them everything that they want or that you won't put them into situations that they don't like, right? Like nobody likes getting, you know, getting immunized when they're a kid, right? Like there are going to be situations where it's complicated and fraught, but like really honoring and observing and listening to consent and body autonomy from a really young age, I think that has really powerful ripple effects because I think all of us as adults, we grew up in a milieu where it was, you push through the pain, you keep working. Your body is just something that you like, maybe take care of after you get off of work. You can schedule in some self-care and exercise time. It's just an object, a means to an end instead of you. And you need to listen to it. Yes. Oh my gosh. So many yeses, because this is totally related to the same work we're asking parents and and other nurturers to do with essentially allowing children to eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full and really never lose that birthright of capacity to eat intuitively that everybody seems to just lose their way because of the cultural messages we get. And same thing with feelings. I mean, if this mini course if it's almost titled (laughs) something around getting rid of this word laziness, but really the content of the mini course is just to focus on helping kids stay attuned to their feelings and sensations and then helping them interpret their behavior as a way of uh, attempts to communicate. This is a way to say whatever you think about what's happening, I think I'm behaving badly or I think I'm lazy if what you feel, if you have access to what you feel, and if what you feel is, let's say, tired, or what you feel is in need of some self-soothing, then you might be thinking, oh, this is lazy, but you might know that what you feel is otherwise. And that kind of dissonance would be a really valuable tool for a person to grow up having, right? Yeah. Yeah. The sense that you know, at first, uh, I think behavior is communication. And then as your kids, like ability to communicate kind of increases, like really those emotional awareness skills of like feelings are part of our body's warning system. And I think it would be possible for someone to grow up and not 
view tiredness as laziness if it wasn't so moralized or even boredom, right? That one gets really demonized, right? Yes. Talk about boredom because boredom is also not a thing. Like boredom is like a defense, right? Against something else that's you can't access, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on. Like it can be stimulation level, right? So again, going back to neurodiversity, right? Autistic people, ADHDers, like there's a very particular kind of stimulation like Goldilocks uh, correct zone that you need to be in. That's not too overwhelming and distracting, but also isn't so flat and featureless that you kind of just feel really kind of dead. And that's one thing that I've learned just from talking to a lot of people with ADHD, that if something isn't stimulating enough, it's basically painful for a lot of ADHDers to go through. Yeah. So boredom is such a trivializing term for how painful and lonely and and grueling a lot of things that we have to do in this world really can be, whether it's, you know, doing your taxes or studying for hours and hours and hours. So that's a really important part of it. And then also, I think that um, it's just important for us to remember that we were not built to focus on a single task all day long. Nobody actually sits and works eight hours out of the day, no matter how much we have to like lie to our employer and pretend that we are. That's just not how human attention works. So a lot of times when we feel bored or we're having trouble focusing, it's because we're actually, again, exhausted or our attention is just at its capacity or we just need social contact or like, you know, novelty, something, exercise. So yeah, again, this is just other needs that we really trivialize because it's not like you're starving. It's not like you need to go to the bathroom. It's not a clear emergency need. So we just stifle it. But it's actually a really important cue about, okay, I need to go to a different environment. I need to talk to somebody. I need to do a different task, all that stuff. I mean, the importance of self-advocacy here is enormous, what you're describing. And that is so important for kids to learn that if they have a need, they need to ask someone for help or at least tell somebody about what's going on with them. And I think what you're saying about boredom is amazing because boredom, it's a pathetic word. What does it even mean? It's too broad. And what you're saying is that what's actually under the boredom is so intense that the person can't even identify it, right? I mean, like you're saying, there could be emotional pain, something excruciating under there. But we just sort of like, you know, boredom. And then no one's attending to anybody that's suffering from boredom. Boredom's like, ah, go do something, right? Go do something. Yeah. Yeah. Parents throw that out and, you know, oh my gosh, you know, like I don't blame them. You're trying to get something done and you don't know how to entertain someone who's who's bouncing off the walls. So it's understandable from where they're sitting too. But I don't know, just, I think as adults, we can recognize those moments where we felt like existential dread, basically. Like we don't know what we're doing with ourselves or our lives or what we want. Those are like big feelings. So then to write that off as boredom and childhood could be really lonely. You don't have a lot of power. You don't have a lot of control over like how you're going to get your needs met. So the way that we just write all of those feelings off as just trivial boredom and something that you fix by working harder is really twisted. Yeah, it's twisted. Well, for folks that are like peak their interest is peaked by this conversation and just would be curious to know more about what you think they should be reading or tuning into. Do you have any resources to share with us? Yes. So the first one is someone that I think a lot of your followers probably are mutuals with already or follow, you know, both this podcast and them, but comprehensive consent. Mm. Love their Instagram and TikTok. Just really nice little video resources, super short little bite-sized 
it's on, you know, fostering autonomy, consent, listening to behavior, all of that good stuff. The website Real Social Skills, realsocialskills.org. That's by um, Rabbi Rudy Reagan. She's a disability advocate and a rabbi. And it's all um, really incredible, just like paradigm shifting writing about, okay, you think someone is doing this, but what if they're doing it for this reason? Yeah. Um, Really, really awesome resources um, that I just absolutely love. And then one that's like a little bit more um, upping the challenge level reading wise is by um, Lee Edelman, basically all of his writing. Um, And he is an anarchist. And so he has like a very like anarchist kind of approach to how we think about what is society's obligation to children and how do we get to a place where we stop treating children like property um, Mm. of either the government or of parents and foster as much freedom in them as we can. And so that kind of leads really nicely into like things like the unschooling movement and just kind Mm. of thinking about how the way that we raise kids today and the structure of the nuclear family, it's really hard for families to be put on the hook for every aspect of bringing a person into the world by themselves. It's really isolating. And it's also really disempowering to kids and teens and minors. So that's really, you know, that's the more like philosophically heavy stuff, Lee Edelman's work, but it's really, I think it's challenging and it really, it's certainly helped me rethink even just as an educator. Okay. How do I actually bring mutual respect to the table instead of like imposing my values on the people I'm teaching? So that's been really nice. That's great. And it's an interesting bookend from the Puritans trying to sit babies up with like prop them up into adult positions to Lee Edelman's work, really just trying to rethink how we think about children's autonomy. And I and and I think that I mean, what what hasn't really been said here is the more we as grownups in children's lives can model that we're working on this, right? I mean, I, I'm curious what you think, but kind of like living in diet culture, like we live in it, it's here. We live in, per, what do we call it? Productivity culture, burnout culture. I don't know what we even call it. But if we're taking this in and saying, you know, I have some unlearning to do <laughs> or I need to get better at doing less, you know, because we are a lot of especially high achieving parents, like we are just, even if we're saying to our kids, you don't have to get A's, we could be modeling for them what really matters in life, right? If we're working 80 hours a week or, and and it's not to say we shouldn't be working 80 hours. I mean, if you want to do it, you know, and I probably work too much too, but I think that being able to model that we're interested in change and that we want to think about things differently. I think ultimately we're wanting to foster critical thinking skills. And I appreciate that last reference because, you know, I'm sure we don't have a lot of anarchists listening to this podcast, but that doesn't mean you can't take some ideas and think critically about them and blend them with some of the more, uh, (laughs) I don't know, uh, productivity podcasts that you're listening to as well. So I don't know if you have any final thoughts about any of that, but I just wanted to say like modeling this stuff goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. It's just all about kind of like questioning your frame. Like there's all these things that we take for granted about what life is supposed to look like and what being a good worker looks like, what being a good parent looks like. And that's something that I really try to emphasize in in my book is just how impossible the standards are that we set for people who work and have any caregiving responsibilities 
whether that's children or elders or disabled partner, whatever it is, the way that our economy and our society is set up is it's impossible to do all of those things at the level everyone expects you to. So really, you know, embracing the idea of just like being good enough, letting certain things go, disappointing the people that you can kind of live with disappointing so that you can put your energy towards the things that really matter the most to you and modeling those skills and making those messy decisions. That's all you have to do, you know, just like acknowledge, you know, if you are a caregiver, acknowledging to your kids that these things are hard, like, and, and kind of modeling what that decision-making process and coping with some of those losses and disappointments and struggles looks like. That's how you, you know, help someone learn to be resilient and be their own person rather than trying to be perfect at this stuff. So you can't even be perfect at the unlearning perfectionism. Like that's, that's a whole other, you know, way that I don't want people to feel bad or inadequate. That would be funny if someone was trying to get an A at getting better at relaxing. (laughs) Yes. Right. (laughs) This was really wonderful and interesting and different from a lot of the conversations. So I thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So that's today's show. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a rating or review of the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps more folks find us, which will continue to nurture this body positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening and tune back in next time for more body positive nurturing wisdom.